Second Captains on RTE Radio 1. Sponsored by Audi Ireland. Future is an attitude. You don't understand. I could have had class. I could have been a contender. I could have been somebody. So he's almost like having a second captain in the team. Second captain, first captain, whatever. Welcome to the show, everyone. I hope you're ready for a bit of a whirlwind international tour on Second Captains this week because we are taking you from Honolulu to Mozambique and quite a few places in between. And we're doing it all in the company of a Pulitzer Prize winning journalist who for nearly 40 years has been one of the leading contributors to one of the most prestigious publications in the journalism world, The New Yorker's William Finnegan is our guest on the show today. Oh, my David here with Kieran Murphy. Hey, Murph. Hey, Owen. How's it going? William Finnegan. He's been a staff writer with The New Yorker since the 80s, where he's built a reputation for his brilliant reporting from war zones and areas of conflict around the world. He's won numerous awards for his coverage of apartheid South Africa, the drug cartels in Mexico, conflicts in Somalia, Sudan, the Balkans and beyond, as well as writing about poverty, politics and race at home in the United States. And he's found the time to write five acclaimed books while he's at it. But he has another life too, and this is where Honolulu comes in, because William is also a surfer, something Mm. he's been obsessed with from his childhood growing up in LA and Hawaii, through his adulthood, and now right into his 70s. Yes, my friend, please report this man is still surfing away like nobody's business. I don't think even in my 20s I would have had the physical capability or the nerve, for that matter, (laughs) to safely guide a surfboard around the ocean. So this is impressive. Right now, I feel like if I'm playing golf in my 70s, it'll be some kind of you know physiological miracle. So <laughs> yeah, surfing yeah, yeah. Uh, is, yes, pretty impressive. Uh, it's good going. For a long time, he kept this obsession to himself. He was worried that colleagues and readers, I presume, might be less inclined to take his opinion seriously if they knew that you know, he dedicated a good chunk of his time traveling the globe in search of new waves to surf. But he got over all of that and in 2016 wrote an incredible memoir called Barbarian Days, A Surfing Life, which won both the, listen to this, both the William Hill Sports Book of the Year Award and the Pulitzer Prize for Biography. That, Murph, is a remarkable double. Yeah, it really is. Uh, I was having a look at this Pulitzer Prize for bi- uh, Biography uh, it has had some fairly impressive winners in the past, including Robert Carroll's exhaustive work on Lyndon B. Johnson, which is basically seen as like the high watermark of all American journalism. Uh, John F. Kennedy himself also won this award. Yeah, yeah, I've heard of him. Yeah, other subjects whose life is celebrated in a Pulitzer winning uh, biography include Mussolini, Malcolm X, Robert <laughs> J. Oppenheimer and God. So any category you share with the Lord of all creation has got to be pretty prestigious, right? Feral dinner party, that one as well, Murph, as they they say. (laughs) So William Finnegan is just about the perfect guest for this show, but will his name be appearing in lights at the top of the second captain's non-sports person, sports person leaderboard come two o'clock today? Murph, what has he got to chase? I could have been a contender. I could have been somebody. Yes, so on every week we ask our guests to give us their all-time sporting highlight. I try and figure out the sports person that I feel they remind me most of, and then I ascribe to our guest a score out of 100 to assess whether they can become Ireland's greatest non-sports person sports person for 2022. Nick Hornby is our current leader on a solid-looking 83 points, but last week's guest, Anne Enright, has 72 points, and she must already despair for her chances of even a podium finish with numbers like that. I did get a lot of blowback from the listeners for only giving Anne... 72 last week on uh, Margaret Lahey attacked me attacked me 
in the following tweet, 72 was a pretty poor score to give her, considering her chat about playing in the streets and sea swimming. Margaret, she said she hated sport. Also, <laughs> stay out of my business, Margaret. Uh, today's guest, William Finnegan, is still surfing as he approaches 70. He will be hoping to go rather better than the golfer trying to shoot his age today. The decision as ever, rests on my shoulders, so he better pay me the respect that's coming to me. (laughs) That is a number to beat. If you want to get in touch with us, you can email editor at secondcaptains.com or tweet at secondcaptains. William Finnegan is coming right up on Second Captain Saturday after... Well, this might be a little predictable, but it's always a good time to go for these guys. I I love the colourful clothes you wear And the way the sunlight plays upon her head Good Vibrations by the Beach Boys goes out especially for our guest today on Second Captain Saturday who in 2016 wrote a best-selling memoir about his passion for surfing Barbarian Days which achieved the unique distinction of winning the Pulitzer Prize for Biography as well as being named William Hill Sports Book of the Year. He's been an award-winning journalist at The New Yorker for nearly four decades reporting from conflict zones and failed states all over the world. He's written a number of critically acclaimed books covering apartheid South Africa, a civil war in Mozambique and rising inequality in the United States. Described by The New Yorker's editor-in-chief David Remnick as one of the very best reporters I've ever seen in action and without a doubt the greatest surfer I've ever met. William Finnegan, it is a pleasure having you on the show. Ah, it's my pleasure to be here. Listen, we'll try to get you some points on the board early on for a strong Irish connection. There's no pressure because we had Malcolm Gladwell on last season and he had literally zero connection besides a passing interest in some Irish middle distance runners in the 1980s. But at the other end of the scale, we have had Senator George Mitchell who brought peace in Northern Ireland. So I'm guessing you might be somewhere in between. What's your Irish background with a name like William Finnegan? Uh, the Finnegan, I don't come by so honestly. It's just like a step-grandfather or something. Mm-hmm. But on my mother's side, it's all it's all uh, Irish going back to the mid 19th century and and, you know, sort of um, sitting out the American Civil War, stealing from both sides. Um, <laughs> and, and then I became like a lot of young writers obsessed with Irish literature when I was young. And James Joyce was my great hero and, and had to go to Ireland and, you know, make all the pilgrimages. And and I've surfed a bit in Ireland. Mm-hmm. Uh, have you tried to trace your roots? How did that go for you? Yeah, I went to Donegal to a village where um, some of my ancestors came from and I did find a grave too that looked right and guy in a store there who had seen a lot of Americans come and go in that vein and, and was very kind about it. <laughs> how, ki- <laughs> how kind are we talking? Because uh, we know, you know from uh, experience that it can be a little up and down. They're, maybe they're happy to take your money, but not quite so happy to give you some uh, actual solid information. I don't think he had any actual solid information. He just he just sympathized with the muddy trek. Okay, so I think we're we're talking no massive early marks for William so far, but there's plenty of time to go. So tell us, yep. seeing as this conversation is going to take us all over the world, why not move from Donegal to Honolulu of all places? How did you end up spending a good chunk of your childhood there in Hawaii? Uh, my dad got a job. Uh, he worked in television. Oh, gee, his first job in Hawaii was on a really funky little uh, musical variety show called Hawaii Calls. And uh, so we moved there, uh, the whole family, when I was 13. I was the oldest and, and uh, I'd already been surfing a couple of years. So it was just a dream come true for me to 
land up in Hawaii. And we lived near some pretty good waves. And, and uh, so I got really, really stuck into it, uh, both the surf and, and my school. And then my dad had other jobs. He became a sort of Hawaii specialist and, and he kept getting hired. And he eventually worked on Hawaii Five-O for years and years. But by then I was actually out of the house. I missed that part. <laughs> well, that sounds particularly glamorous, but it's, it's an unusual job, I, w- I would imagine. Did it feel that way for you as a kid that your dad has kind of a cool job? Did you like to hang around? Uh, no, it didn't seem cool at all. <laughs> it was all I was used to. In fact, when I was small and he was having to work a lot of other jobs, he had a job pumping gas in a, you know, in a gas station. And um, my mother and I used to visit him. This is when I was like three or four and take him lunch. And he wore, in those days, there were uniforms at a gas station. He had this snazzy white uniform with a uh, chevron on the side. It was a mm-hmm. chevron station. And I thought that was the most glamorous job I'd ever seen. <laughs> he, he worked hard. He went up through the ranks, um, started as a, as a carpenter and electrician and, and ended up as a producer. We all have a certain picture, I think, of Hawaii in our heads at the moment. Is it broadly accurate what we're all thinking about right now? Is that what it was for you? Um, no. That is uh, the surf, yes. I mean, I didn't know exactly what to expect, but it was bigger, better, uh, warmer, just generally more exciting. And the people I surfed with were uh, kind of incredible local Hawaiian kids. Um, so that part, yes. Um, but otherwise, I mean, at the school I went to, for instance, I was in middle school at the time, and um, it was really, really rough with all these gangs, you know, and I was constantly getting in fights, and, and there weren't too many other Howleys, white kids like me. So I, I just kind of battled to survive each day is how it felt. The education wasn't much. And then eventually a, a nasty little uh, gang um, who called themselves, believe it or not, the in crowd um, <laughs> invited, you know, they'd been kind of watching me from a distance and, and they invited me to join. And I, I gladly jumped in and um, actually was never in another fight. I mean, that was the end of that. Well, was surfing away in there? That sounds like a hell of a culture shock for you. Was surfing away into society in Hawaii? It was a way out of school and all that. It was a great break from. Um, and yeah, my my best friends, uh, I mean, the guys I met in the water and became started keeping their boards at my house. I lived closer to the beach than they did. Um, were the Kalakakui brothers. There were three of them. Um, the middle one was my age. And so he was my sort of pal, Roddy Kalakakui, and we surfed together for um, that year. And, and uh, there was also a Japanese guy in the group named Ford Takara, who was kind of an outlier um, in, in general, like in school, the Japanese kids were good students and, and Ford was an exception. He was a surfer. So from those beginnings and difficulties at school in Hawaii, when did a life in journalism become an option for you? Was there anyone pushing you in that direction or was anyone a particularly big influence on you? Well, I started out as a poet and then a fiction writer and uh, yeah, my dad used to actually push me when I was young, you know, to write for publication, write for the school paper, the local paper, anything. You have to write for publication. That's the real thing, which is kind of true. Um, but I, you know, refused it. I was terrified of being rejected. I, I just, no, no, I was writing for, you know, posterity. I was writing literature. And um, so I never did what he had in mind. Um, and it was years and years later, I was um, in my 20s. I'd been uh, bumming around surfing um, and, and in the South Pacific and, and, and in uh, Southeast Asia. I was uh, finally, I was living in South Africa. I had a job, you know, working odd jobs. I had a job teaching high school outside Cape Town um, during the battle days of apartheid. This was 1980. And I um, got into such an intense situation at this high school where I, uh, in, it was called Cape Flats outside Cape Town proper. 
uh, where I was working. So this uh, would have been a bit of ta- township. You would have been teaching black yeah, kids. Yeah, yeah, in a black township, and uh, with a with a kind of terrible history and really really interesting place. And and uh, and the kids went out on strike um, against apartheid in education, kind of unexpectedly. That is, I didn't see it coming. I was I was the outsider to say the least, um, being an American and being white and. And uh, and it ended up and it got quite violent. This confrontation with the state between you know, students and the state spread nationally, and it was just such an intense year that by the end of it, I was really only interested in writing about politics and power. I, I'd kind of lost interest in the sort of romantic mm. fiction I had been writing. So it was around then I would say I I had shown tendencies to reporting before that, <laughs> but suddenly I, I really wanted to write nonfiction. Am I right in saying, William, that even in your teaching, though, you, because what those protests were ultimately about were the students rising up and not wanting to be taught the curriculum, essentially, you know, the pro-apartheid stuff that was being rammed down their throats, presumably. You had already moved away from that yourself. You were trying different ways of teaching within the township. Yeah, I was probably, uh, in fact, I was on the verge of being fired when this when this uh, big boycott started up and, and distracted people. And uh, and and I was suddenly on the right side of history, as it were. That is, I, I was teaching English and, and geography and uh, these, these different subjects. And, and we get the textbooks, which were full of racist stuff and, and ridiculous interpretations of South African history and geography and so on. Um, and, uh, you know, just ignoring the fact that, that the countries around South Africa, Angola, Mozambique and so on had, had fought these anti-colonial wars and were no longer ruled by the Portuguese. This wasn't in the books. Um, and so although I didn't know much about South Africa, I did a sort of crash course and I was just, you know, teaching what I could find out and what I knew about actual South African history, about neighboring countries, all that sort of thing. And uh, as I say, felt like I was about to be fired. And then. Suddenly the students were out there, you know, no more brainwashing. And, and most of the teachers stood accused of, of and, and I and a couple of others were suddenly on the right side. We're standing with the kids and, uh, and my, my job was safe and, and my, my scalp was safe for a while. Had you considered when you were teaching there that you were potentially part of the problem as well? Sure. I mean, it was a, a year of intense uh, sort of self-loathing as well as everything else. Um, because, I mean, I was compelled um, uh, because of the color of my skin to live in certain neighborhoods, you know, quite far from where I was teaching and had all the privileges and, and, and sort of um, free pass into everything that, that came with being white. I was also surfing and the, the reality of, of privilege had never been driven so hard into me before. How did you square that? Hmm. Uh, how did you kind of live through that, plot your day to day through that? Well, it was, um, I had this busy job. I, I, I made friends eventually as people came to trust me in the township where I worked. So I was, I was sort of fully engaged all the time rather than just sitting around um, self-loathing. Um, but when it came to thinking about what to write, um, I was stymied because um, I, I wrote a couple of pieces for American magazines that I'd never seen. I'd been out of the U.S. for, at that point, three years, um, I think, and um, has, was really, really out of touch. This is in the days when I'd make a phone call home perhaps once a year. And so when I thought about um, writing for American readers, for instance, um, I would look around and think, no, you know, I can't. I'm not going to entertain Americans with the suffering of people here. It's just they're not going to help. They're not going to do anything. I had a kind of fundamentalist 
view of it all at that point because I was I was so uh, I had it so much in my face. So it took me I don't know a couple of years to get over myself and realize that this is the only thing I have to write about. I mean, this is the thing I know. Um, yes, I'm just another bourgeois American writing for other you know, and it's probably not going to do any material good for the struggle as everybody called it, the liberation struggle. Uh, it's all I have, and so I started writing about South Africa and and, and moved ahead. But um, it was a huge shock to my system to be in in the thick of something like that. I mean, I've been working as a bartender and a, and a dishwasher. And, and back in the US, I'd, I'd saved some money working on the railroad in California. So yeah, this was a completely different thing. And by the time I left, I just uh, had completely reoriented my writing, my thinking, what, what I felt like I was here to do. It's true. Yeah. And that seems to have carried through your entire career. I mean, soon after that point in your life, in the early to mid 1980s, you began writing for The New Yorker, often from areas of conflict, and you're still with them almost 40 years later. So what is it about failed states and war zones that appeals to you as a reporter? Well, out of the the South African topic, I wrote a couple of books about South Africa um, before I, I wasn't able to go go back. Um, in those days, they didn't give um, visas to reporters that were critical of, of the regime. Uh, so I started writing about, I, I wrote a book about Mozambique, which was a, which was locked into a terrible civil war um, that was all generated by, basically by the, by the fall of, of white rule in Southern Africa. And then just um, kind of kept going in that vein, I guess. I, I got interested in U.S. foreign policy, um, and, and eventually, um, as you mentioned, failed states, I, I sort of worked up, I, I worked in Somalia. Um, I, I spent time in different parts of the Balkans in the 90s. And, and I got really interested in how people live without a government. And in Africa, I should just mention that, that in some cases, this wasn't the worst thing that could happen. That is, the that, that government um, could be the worst predator on mm. the scene. And uh, yes, it's desperate when you have no no, no government, but uh, people start coming up with their own structures and, and their sort of creativity and, and post-colonial sense of, of how to organize themselves comes to the fore. That, that really has uh, interested me right along. When you look at what you have done in, in those kind of places, what is the overall, how, how ambitious are you for the impact that your journalism and that maybe the more broadly that reporting like that can make? Are you trying to shape public opinion? Are you trying to draw sufficient attention to a crisis that can in turn shape how Western governments respond? Or is it just, is is that too ambitious for a reporter? Uh, I have had that kind of idea often, you know, I'm going to contradict this, this, the dominant narrative, or at least what the US government is thinking and, and, you know, get attention to a different view, perhaps change a lot change some minds. But in general, yeah, that's um, not, those aren't really the stakes you're playing for. You, you feel like that. Although in one case I can think of, I mentioned that I, I covered the civil war in Mozambique back in the late 80s, early 90s. And it was uh, widely understood in a certain way. Uh, it, was a, it was a proxy war that Pretoria was fighting. This is in, in uh, yeah, the waning days of, of the apartheid regime in South Africa. And they were sponsoring the rebels in Mozambique, and that's what was going on. They were just trying to, you know, uh, trouble or, or overthrow a decolonize, a black Marxist-Leninist government in, in neighboring Mozambique, which also harbored some of the leaders of the African National Congress, you know, Mandela's group that now uh, runs the show in South Africa. Um, and that was my understanding when I went in to Mozambique. I found a completely different sort of war. 
Um, it was uh, more of a genuine civil war. The rebels actually had a social base, which was widely denied. I mean, I was involved in the anti-apartheid movement. And of course, no, that was not, those were just mercenaries, you know. Well, um, the government, it turned out, the military uh, in the countryside was just as dangerous as the rebels. And, and I didn't know what to do with this kind of information. It, it sort of overthrew my own understanding. Uh, so much that I had a kind of crisis and, 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 you know, and got sick and had to go in the hospital and, and thought, you know, I'm, I'm losing my mind out here. Um, but it was just, and I ended up writing a book called A Complicated War. I mean, it had more aspects than I expected. And, and the reason I mentioned it is because U.S. policy toward um, ostensibly um, communist, anti-communist is the 80s and early 90s um, conflicts, um, which were going on all over the place, you know, in Afghanistan and, and El Salvador and Mozambique and Angola. And the U.S. consistently um, was on the side of the anti-communists, however brutal and illegitimate, um, and they and they usually were. And in Mozambique, for historical reasons, the U.S. had held back and had not thrown its weight behind these rebels who were um, incredibly brutal um, force. And um, I mean, they're often compared to the Khmer Rouge. They were really, really bad. But as I say, I, I found a sort of different picture and including who might have actually committed infamous massacres that had kind of given the American right in the Congress pause over whether to push for support for these rebels. Um, and then I learned, that, oh, perhaps the, the army committed that infamous massacre. And, you know, what should I do with this? I mean, if I just publish this, like, oh, I've got a scoop here. I'm pretty sure I'm right. This gives ammunition to people who really don't have the welfare of Mozambicans uh, in, in mind. They're just sort of anti-communist fanatics. Um, and so I, I've been taking a kind of delicate path, what I include, what I don't. Um, and in that case, it really felt like I could provide um, ammunition to um, sort of dangerous forces in the U.S. government, basically. So that's that's a that may be exaggerating the importance of what I was doing, but but it felt like that. On that delicate path, you say you need to take. I'm really interested in how you actually figure out what is the accurate information in these places that are often chaotic. Obviously, the war in Ukraine is putting that to the forefront of our minds at the moment with the misinformation from the Russian side and clearly contradictory information that comes from that conflict. How did you go about establishing the true bigger picture in your work? Uh, this is a good question because um, you talk to people, you talk to people, you read everything you can, you, you just you know pursue information in, in, in obvious ways. Um, but you receive so much contradictory information that you are left with a, you know, a sort of like a potential understanding. Um, and, and then when you offer that to your readers, in my case, the New Yorkers readers, um, it, you, I have to qualify everything. You know, it seems to be like this and, and these guys seem to be, you know, less brutal than those guys. Like, like we can't know the meaning of anything. And, and that was always the line I was trying to tread. But Ukraine, yeah, is is also a pretty complicated war. Um, I mean, it's, it's obviously Russian aggression against Ukraine um, for reasons stated and unstated. But you have regions of Ukraine with a certain amount of uh, support for the Russian government um, in the east, primarily. And, you know, the Ukrainians are being are being crushed and pummeled and, and tormented in this barbaric way by 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 Putin. Um, which I think is is a correct general picture of the war, um, but it is 
a, a conflict with, on, on the one hand, an obvious moral weight and structure, um, and on the other hand, endlessly complicated, like, like every war. Okay, well, we're speaking to William Finnegan from The New Yorker magazine this afternoon on Second Captain Saturday. A Pulitzer Prize winning sports book, I reckon, should be enough to earn William some major non-sports person, sports person points after the break. But let's face it, our scoring system is erratic, to say the least. We're going to talk about your sporting life after these. Second Captains on RTE Radio 1, sponsored by Audi Ireland. Future is an attitude. Second captain, first captain, whatever. Yes, it's Second Captain Saturday with Owen McDevitt and Kieran Murphy. We're in conversation this afternoon with one of the great American journalists, William Finnegan of The New Yorker. Now, William, we got a good sense already of how your conflict reporting has taken you around the world and some of the difficult situations that you've found yourself in. But the whole time you have worked as a reporter, you also had this dual life where surfing was this other dominant part of who you were and what you did. And it was something you took extremely seriously. I believe for a long time, you kept your surfing absolutely secret from your professional life and from your colleagues. Why do you think that was? Because from your writing, it's really clear that you have this immense passion for it. And I would have thought that people would understand that passion, even if they didn't fully, you know, they didn't fully get why you were so into your surfing. Surely passion for anything is one of the best of human traits. Yeah, well, surfing is this, like, I have had this kind of bipolar life where on the one hand, I'm, I'm a journalist and I'm, I'm trying to um, do my work and, and have, you know, inform my readers. Um, and on the other hand, I, I just want to chase waves. And, and I mean, it's, it's surfing is kind of the ultimate irresponsible activity. It's, it's pointless. It's, it's, it's unproductive. It's anti-productive. Um, I hit it somewhat, like most people do. I, I knew um, professionally, didn't certainly didn't know I surfed. Um, you know, there's the um, old stereotype. Um, I don't know how strong it is in Ireland, um, but it was very strong in California where I grew up. You know, the surfer dude who hasn't got a thought in his head. Uh, I don't know if you remember the, the film Fast Times at Ridgemont High. Yes, Sean Penn and, uh, yeah, and all that. Yes, yeah, 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 yeah. Yes, the ultimate depiction of the brainless surf dude. Um, so that shadow kind of hangs heavy over someone trying to be taken seriously as a writer. Um, and uh, so I didn't let on that I surfed until a certain point when I thought it would be safe to do. Actually, I, I proposed a profile of a guy I surfed with in San Francisco, a big wave surfer um, and, a, and a physician, a really interesting guy, uh, to The New Yorker, and I got the assignment. Um, and then I took seven years to write it because I kind of got cold feet. Um, I'm not sure I want to come out of the closet as a surfer, and I was writing a lot about uh, a lot of opinion pieces at the time about U.S. foreign policy. It's all for the New Yorker and and just kind of thought that the people I was arguing with publicly would have this suddenly against me. You know, oh, you're just some dumb surfer. You know, we don't need to listen to you. They're all you know straight out of Harvard and 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 uh, have, have done internships at the right places while I was a surf bomber. Wearing dicky balls and, while you're. Uh, in board shorts or whatever is that the there you are yeah. <laughs> and and so I, I thought oh the, this this would you know I wouldn't be taken seriously and that and nothing like that happened I mean nobody ever mentioned it it's like nobody cared um, but it did take, take me quite a while to, to come out of the closet 
Well, your secret is very much out nowadays, considering your memoir, Barbarian Days, A Surfing Life, won the Pulitzer Prize a few years back. The book reflects on the entirety of your life from your first encounter with waves as a kid in California, your teenage experiences in Hawaii that we talked about. Obviously, it's quite a challenge to go back 50 odd years and remember with accuracy events from that time. But is it true you were helped with this by a treasure trove of old letters that turned up one day on your doorstep? Yeah, that's right. Uh, A box just box of letters came in the mail, um, unexpected from, from my best friend from, from my teenage years, who was cleaning out a garage in Los Angeles and, and found this box and sent it to me. Thought maybe you'd like this. I had no idea I was plotting this book, Barbarian Days. And I, I was struggling to remember what it was like in, in Hawaii when I was young. And here was this, I didn't remember writing these letters. I mean, there were dozens of them big, fat, handwritten, um, hundreds of pages. And I apparently like, every night just sat down and wrote to my friend all about my adventures, you know, mainly surfing. Uh, also, you know, girls, school, uh, and the writing was absolutely miserable. You know, every, every single thing was bitching. Every other word was <laughs> bitching. Um, and yet it was um, so rich. I mean, it was, it was the, the Pusti and Madeleine. You, know, you bit into it and it all came back. And some of the stories were true. I assumed others I wasn't so sure. Um, but that was my great my great source uh, for that part of the book. One striking part of the book for me, and it has obvious parallels with your career, is the danger of the situations that you put yourself in. Surfing, it seems, can be a particularly wild hobby. And we thought the best way to illustrate this, and also to illustrate the brilliance of your writing, was to ask you to read an extract from the book for us that I think really outlines the perils of the surfer's life. So would you read it for our audience in your own words, please? Sure, I'll read just, uh, just a paragraph or so. Um, this is from uh, a section of the book about Madeira, the Portuguese island out in the middle of the Atlantic. Um, and we had, in those days, no forecasting. So we'd often be surprised um, by, you know, get up in the morning and there's big waves and you didn't know they were coming. Um, this is a, a description of a situation that suddenly emerged at a place called Ponta Pequena. Uh, I, should, I should mention the waves were getting sort of bigger and bigger and I was getting tired and, and, uh, and uh, realizing it was time to, to go back to the village where I was staying. I decided to catch the very next wave I could and go in. I found a nice medium-sized wave, possibly the first of a set. I caught it, shaky with relief. Then I managed to fall off. I popped up annoyed and found myself looking at a wall of water that seemed to have marched out of my worst nightmares. It was already pulling water from the shelf, pulling me toward it, and there was no chance at all that I would escape it. It was the biggest wave I had ever seen at Pekena, and it was already starting to break. I swam toward it hard and dove early, but it plucked me out of the depths and beat me till I screamed in hopeless protest. When I finally surfaced, there was another one behind it, just as big, just as malignant. There seemed to be a bit more water on the shelf. I swam to the bottom and tried to get a grip on a rough slab of rock, but was instantly ripped away. Another long, thorough beating. I tried to cover my head with my arms in case it dashed me against the bottom. It didn't. I eventually resurfaced. There was another one. It was bigger than the others, but the important thing about it was that it sucked all the water off the shelf. Boulders started surfacing in front of me, and then I was standing in a field of rocks in rushing waist-deep water. I did not understand where I was. A field of rocks had risen out of the ocean, quite far from shore, at a break I thought I knew. 
In a lifetime of surfing, I had never seen anything like this. The wave mutated into a hideous, boiling, two-story wall of white water, almost without breaking. It had run out of water to draw from. I had a moment in which to decide what to do before it hit me. I picked a fissure in the wall and threw myself up and into it. The vague hope was that if I wriggled in deep enough, the white water might swallow me rather than simply smash me to pieces on the rocks. Something like that occurred, apparently. My feet were sliced up from the leap, but I did not hit the bottom as I ragdolled shoreward in the bowels of the wave. And when I next surfaced, I was in deep water in the channel east of Pacana, safe. I slowly made my way back to Jardine. My brain seemed to have shut down. I had for a moment expected to die, not in some vague future, but right then and there. Wow. Wow. <sighs> I mean, like the first thing that strikes me listening to you there is that your brain was still operating at, like at a conscious level, even taking into account the amount of danger that you were in. And I think that I well, I obviously have no experience like that whatsoever to draw upon. But the idea that I would be able to think clearly and take action, no matter how kind of daft the action might be in that moment, it kind of blows me away a little. That's it's an extraordinary uh, piece of writing and an extraordinary experience for you to go through. Yeah, thanks. It it um, it was a probably the closest call I've ever had. I mean, that moment when I mean I felt like I was drowning a few times, you know, and being held down too long been hit the bottom quite hard, that kind of stuff. Um, but that moment being caught in front of this wave that pulled all the water off the shelf um, was, felt hopeless. Like there's nothing to be done here. But, you know, if this is, I've been surfing for 20, 30 years uh, by this time. And, and you have these, these little instincts like, oh, the only slight chance of anything coming out okay here, of not getting killed might be, this um and and so it's just instinct um at that at that moment more than conscious thought uh, an important part of surfing in a way is is all the thinking that goes with it which you wouldn't notice if you're you know driving past the beach and you see a bunch of surfers out in the water um even in just ordinary little waves um they're all actually thinking very hard trying to predict what the ocean is going to do next you know where to be in the next 30 seconds um, to be in the right spot for, for a wave or whatever. Well, we're at the point in our conversation, William, where we're going to start putting some points together on your sporting life. We're going to look for your all-time highlight from your surfing life in just a bit. But before we get to that, we know you still surf today, having turned 70 this year. Can you tell us on the very best day when you catch the very best wave, can you describe what that feels like? Hmm. <clears throat> well, um, it's often compared to, you know, exquisite lovemaking. I won't do that for you. Um, it's a bit early in the day for, for people. <laughs> <laughs> it's just a, a kind of, I mean, I, I'm getting a great wave, um, which um, gets to be a more and more rare occurrence as I get older. But I, I get more sort of memory and satisfaction out of each one these days. There's, for me anyway, the, the, the sense of I've been trying to get here, I've been trying to get here, now I'm here. And, and yet you must stay intensely in the moment. Don't, don't get distracted by, you know, don't, don't start claiming too soon. You know, I've, I've got it. I'm in there. I'm, that's things usually go wrong. You great waves. You normally, you, you want them to go on and on. They never last long enough. Got 
strong qualities of addiction um, surfing. And, and, and even these sort of peak moments um, don't entirely satisfy or leave you, leave you um, mm-hmm. ready to quit for a while. They usually fire you up for more. Um, but th- there are many kinds of, as I said, there's, there, are, there are great rides that are um, frightening and the satisfaction of it is, is sort of coming through and you're still in one piece. And, and there are others where you feel completely on top of the situation from beginning to end and you're doing what you want to do, what you imagine, your, your body's just almost ahead of you. And, and waves throw up surprises if you manage to meet that surprise um, half by luck in the exact right spot, doing the right thing. All I can say is it, it's, it's deeply satisfying. Okay, well, that is pretty, pretty incredibly described. Just before Murph puts an exact number on your sporting life, I do need to get your all-time highlight. For me, I think that story you just told us, narrowly avoiding a terrible fate, surfing that wave in Madeira, should be right up there. But of all the waves you've surfed, of all the places you've seen in the world, what is your own personal sporting highlight? It would have to be um, finding a wave in Fiji, in West Fiji, in the late 70s with my friend Brian DeSalvatore. Um, we had been bumming around in the South Pacific looking for waves for, for some months, um, different island groups in Tonga and Samoa. And, uh, we were in Fiji that gets a lot of surf, but um, there are 300 islands and, and there were no surfers at the time. And so we weren't finding much, but then um, happened to hear over Marine Radio an exchange between two um, American surfers on two different boats out of Tahiti. They were also looking for waves out there. These are guys we hadn't met, but, but we'd heard them on Marine Radio. And one was describing to the other this wave he had found. And so we were in West Fiji looking for this wave and, and just happened to run into a, a white woman in a little town called Lautoka. Um, started talking to her and turned out she was, a, she was crewing on the boat that had found that wave. And she told me about it. And so then we took a bus down to a village and uh, then hiked up from the village onto a mountain to where we could see this uninhabited island off perhaps five miles across the channel. Um, and we have binoculars. And sure enough, we get up there on the mountain, put the binoculars on the island, and there are these waves wrapping 180 degrees, breaking back into the wind. And they just one after another. It, it looked like, like they were breaking so evenly. They looked like, uh, like a still photo. This was it. This is what we've been looking for. So we arranged, you know, for some fishermen to take us out there with some water and food. And we camped there um, for most of that surf season. They'd come back every week and, and replenish our supplies and just waited on that wave on a little island called Tavarua. And uh, it was kind of a fickle wave. It, 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 we had long, flat spells where we just kind of sweated in our hammocks in the, in the jungle there and, and tried to fish on the reef and so on. But when the wave came... It was the best wave either of us had ever surfed. And uh, we had that to ourselves for many memorable days. That was sort of the highlight of my surfing life, I think. Okay. And is this the first outing of this wave or has it been subsequently overrun with tourists? Uh, alas, the latter. Um, it, that is to say, we kept this place a secret. A couple of other boats came in. We weren't the only people who surfed it that year, um, but we were the only people who camped on it. Um, we had a kind of blood oath to never, <laughs> never reveal the location of this wave. You know, crowding is a big problem in surfing. And this is a place you just wanted to leave alone. My friend Brian and I actually never spoke the word Tavarua between us. We used a code <laughs> name. That's how seriously we took this. And that went on for maybe five years. 
and but then we were back in the U.S. and you know, kind of planning to return. And then one day, uh, Surfer Magazine came in the mail, and there on the cover was was Tavarua. And it turns out other guys had found it, and some Americans had leased it and and built a resort, and and it became one of the most famous waves in the world. So it's overrun with tourists. Have we heard correctly though that you may be one of those tourists again very soon? You might have. <laughs> there might be an inkling that you're you're going to surf it again all these decades later. Well, actually, I held out. I boycotted, and, and you know, sulked in my tent like Achilles for I don't know ten, twenty years. Um, but eventually, um, I was middle aged and thought life's you know passing me by, and, and I now have the money I can actually afford to go there. And I became a, a very regular customer. And some of the older Fijians working at the resort recognized me from back in the day when we'd been the the two castaways, you know, um, <laughs> coming in out of the village and camping on the island. And they laughed at me. You know, I was I was the American who had failed to start a hotel. <laughs> are, are you going to go back again? Some good friends are going uh, in nine days, and they're trying to get me to come along. Uh, I think oh, I can't really compete with all these like nineteen year olds paddling machines from Sydney, so I'm not sure. Murph, this is high octane, high caliber stuff we've got here. William is not messing around today, so can you please now rank this sporting life of William Finnegan? You don't understand. I could have had class. Don't have stars in this game, Mrs. Weaver. What do you have then? People like me. I could have been a contender. I could have been somebody. Well, William, I'm sure Ireland's quest to find our top non-sports person, sports person for 2022 is the talk of the Irish American community over there. But just in case any of our listeners aren't familiar, what I'm about to do is assess your all-time sporting highlight. Pick an athlete that I feel most closely resembles you and your sporting achievements and then present you with a score out of 100 to discover if that coveted crown will reside in the Finnegan household this winter. So the score to beat is 83 points, skillfully winkled from me by Nick Hornby. And apart from cheating death in such dramatic circumstances, finding one of the 10 greatest surfing spots in the entire world is a fairly compelling all-time personal sporting highlight. Now, Mark's removed for being both unable to stop the march of commerce from irrevocably changing that place and also not being the cold-hearted capitalist who did the changing in the first place, thereby earning millions of ill-gotten dollars, but points gained for at least trying to keep it secret. Uh, And the secret password as well. Very nice touch. Uh, I feel that since you've no intention of giving up on your surfing dream, this dedication to the cause reminds me of nothing more than another Irish-American, the seemingly ageless Tom Brady, who at the age of 104 is still a quarterback in the National Football League. Longevity is a key factor when assessing one's sporting greatness, and you have certainly been the GOAT of this RT Radio 1 weekend. So I'm honoured to give you 76 points, and we thank you for being so, so generous with your time. William Finnegan, this has been your sporting life. Very happy. Thanks, Murph. Brilliant. <laughs> Listen, round of applause, please. William Finnegan, you've been amazing. Thank you so much. Really appreciate it. Totally my pleasure. And, and I don't know what story Hornby told you, but I hope it was good. <laughs> it was good. Don't worry. He, he, he knows how to spin a yarn, that guy.
That's the brilliant tune Moth by Belfast Kit Philippa and her album called Human. You can go and check that out if you can. You're listening to Second Captain Saturday and i got to say, Murph, I got quite a kick out of hearing a widely respected journalist for The New Yorker saying the words, thanks Murph, after you randomly put a number <laughs> on his sporting achievements. That, just what a good sport William Finnegan was. Yes. And I yes. must say, we all know he's going back to Fiji next week, don't we? Don't mind this. Oh, I'm not sure. There's a few young hotshots out there. He's going to go Forget back and teach it. those brats, those 19-year-olds from Sydney a thing or two about how to surf. I've never seen that Sean Penn movie you were talking about. Oh, I was really annoyed. I couldn't remember Sean Penn's character's name. Uh, so I Googled it there during <laughs> the song. And yes, it is, of course, Jeff Spicoli from Fast Times at Ridgemont High, who is like the... Sounds kind of ridiculous. I mean, uh, you know, one of the all-time great Hollywood creations. I was like, I'm sure there's a ton of... Really famous Jeff Spicoli lines that I, I would have impressed William by quoting verbatim <laughs> if 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 I if my it just had my head together, but then I I'm actually looking at a, a website here with some of his greatest hits. All I need are some tasty waves, a cool buzz, and I'm fine. People on Quaaludes should not drive. This all suggests to me on that Fast Times at Richmond High is not half as funny as I remember it. No, <laughs> but nevertheless, there is Jeff Spicoli. How amazing was that reading that William did for us, by the way? That was, I would have thought a wall of water that seemed to have marched out of my worst nightmares was worth a few extra points, Murph, but you, you seem to be coming down hard on everybody else since Nick Hornby. This does happen, doesn't it? You know. This has been a second captain's production for RTE. The show is produced by Killian Down. Our thanks to Jan Lanagon and Elizabeth Largy in RTE. Mark Horgan is the series producer for Second Captains. If you want a little more Second Captains in your life, you can hear us Monday to Friday at secondcaptains.com. Stay tuned to RT Radio 1 right now for the first in a new season of Doc on 1. Thanks, Murph. Thank you, Owen. Thanks so much for listening. Hope you enjoyed the show and we'll see you next week.